Good morning. Welcome to this reading of God's Holy Word. If you wish to follow the reading with me, uh, it's on the easy to find page one, two, three, four. And we'll be looking at the first of these seven letters that God directed John to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So we'll be looking from verse 1 of chapter 2 at this first letter. To the church in Ephesus, to the angels of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have not forsaken the love, sorry, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Good morning. Uh, be a great help if you can keep uh, page 1234 open in front of you in, in the Pew Bibles or open your Bible to that page if you're not there uh, already. We'll look at this letter in some detail. But receiving a letter is a, a, a wonderful thing, isn't it? When, a, when I, I mean, I get lots of posts, but occasionally something will land on the mat and the address and the name is handwritten. And you think, actually, this is personal. Uh, and there is something very special, isn't there, about receiving a handwritten letter. Now, in the next two chapters in the book of Revelation, what we get is seven letters written by Jesus to these seven churches that form a sort of ring around the old ancient province of Asia Minor. And the first is the church in Ephesus. This church uh, that is in the city where John would have first gone ashore 
if he was released from Patmos. And it's quite a thing to imagine, isn't it? A letter to you from God himself. It's a sort of slightly funny picture we get, isn't it, in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? I mean, it's, you sort of feel like Jesus is sort of striding around his office saying, right, take a dictation to the church in Ephesus. So he doesn't quite say to the church in Ephesus, does he? He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And that needs just a little bit of explanation, uh, and it's caused some confusion over the years. The Greek word angel uh, just means messenger. And um, so some people have taken uh, this idea of the angels of the seven churches as being essentially like the vicars of the churches or the bishops. Uh, So to the messenger of the church, write this. So it's as if the the note lands on the vicarage mat. And... to me at least, an amusing uh, aside is that there was a, 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 a sect that grew up in the 19th century. I happened to do some, uh, some work on them and um, they called themselves the Catholic Apostolic Church. And uh, they were really into the book of Revelation. Uh, and when they, because they, were sort of, they saw themselves as a, as, as a kind of renewing of the church and, a, and, and, and an end to all denominations, thus the name, we're just the church, the Catholic Apostolic Church, um, they called their equivalent of bishops angels. Uh, and they have, there's a massive church in Gordon Square in London. It was used by UCL for a long time as their chaplaincy. And apparently, uh, at the, in, in the back of the church, in, in, in a bit the public generally never get to go into, they're quite uh, a secretive organisation. They've almost gone out of existence now, having been millions and millions strong. Uh, but at the back, apparently there's a sign one of those sort of little hands, you know, pointing that way. And it says, angels' cloaks this way. <laughs> and I quite like that. But there's not much point in me telling you that. And I don't think that's what it means. I don't think this is about the sort of Jesus writing to the church leader. Uh, in chapter one, we saw, didn't we, Jesus walking amongst seven lampstands uh, and holding in his right hand seven stars. Uh, And at the end of chapter 1, it says, this is the uh, mystery, verse 20, just before what we we, we looked at uh, with Mike just a moment ago. Write therefore what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The stars that Jesus holds fully in his hand, completely there are not the church leaders but if you like the sort of heavenly reality the spiritual reality of the church's life the bit behind the curtain and Jesus holds them Uh, and so as he writes to the angel of the churches he's writing to the church as it really is. And as he begins his letter, just a few verses to this church in Ephesus, he points them back to that picture that John has seen. 
he reminds them who it is that is writing this letter. Uh, A figure so glorious that when John, who was Jesus' close friend, when John sees him, he falls at his feet as though dead. He is awesome and glorious. Unbearably so, in one sense. And yet, he is the one who walks among the lampstands. He's there with the churches, and indeed he holds those churches in his hand. As he writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, remember who I am. I'm here, in your midst. But at the same time, I hold you in my hand. You're mine. Now, each of these letters follows a pattern. There's the introduction to the angel of the church. Uh, Then uh, Jesus refers back to John's initial vision of of himself uh, and uh, says something about from that vision that's of particular relevance to that church. He he, he then, it's almost like an appraisal, like a, a, a performance review. He says, well, look, this is what's good and this is what's bad. Uh, And this is what will happen if nothing changes, but this is what's coming if you listen to me. And each one ends with this funny phrase. We have it in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, first of all, the thing to note is that each of these letters is written to a specific church, to a very... uh, real moment in time to a real group of people. It's written to a congregation a a, a bit like ours. But it's not just for them. It's for everyone who hears it. Let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what I think we'll find as we go through these seven letters is there will be things that apply to us as a, a church community where you can say, yes, our church is a bit like that. But there will also just be things that apply to you or to me as an individual where God puts his finger on something in your life and says, I need you to hear this. You see, this phrase, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, it is not new in Revelation. It's actually, in Luke 8, the phrase that Jesus says at the end of the parable of the sower. And if you remember the parable of the sower, uh, Jesus talks about someone going out to sow seed and there are four different kinds of soil and only one of those really bears fruit. They all get the seed which he explains to his disciples is the word of God uh, and there's some sort of response to it, but many fall away. And here Jesus refers back to that. You see, it's a bit of a pun, isn't it, in the parable of the sower, talking about growing wheat or corn. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, Jesus calls us back to that parable, to that remembrance, that just hearing the word, and even having some sort of response to the word that God gives to his people, isn't enough. It's got to go right in. It's got to change who you are. And so as we listen to this letter, it comes to us with that sort of solemn admonition from Jesus Christ himself. If you've got ears to hear, listen. So what is Jesus saying 
to the church at Ephesus and through them to us. Well, it's quite simple, really. Dear church in Ephesus, there is so much that is good. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people, those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've tested them and shown them to be false. Ephesus was a religious hotbed. It was most famous, perhaps, for uh, its temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a city dominated by worship of this goddess, this Greek goddess. Uh, And in her temple uh, were hundreds of ritual prostitutes. Her her worship was a, a kind of fertility cult, And so people went to be with those uh, women and, you know, they believed that somehow that would produce fertility. The crops would grow, the the animals would breed, that that sort of thing. When uh, Paul travelled to Ephesus and preached there, there were a couple of very powerful signs of the gospel being at work. People came out and they burned their magical scrolls and parchments. They, they turned their back on uh, this worship of things within the creation and turned to worship Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and they received it with such joy that the city was so overturned that in the end, uh, a man whose job it was to make little silver idols, little gods for people to worship in their homes, stirred up a crowd to a riot because he said you know we're losing our livelihood and you know the preeminence of Ephesus as a place for worship of Artemis is in danger the Ephesians had welcomed the gospel with such warmth Paul stayed there for more than two years teaching first of all in the synagogue and then when he got thrown out of there in, the, in, in a lecture hall next door And it was a a place that had been profoundly shaped by the teaching of Jesus. And you can see that in the life of the church even now. That they've turned their back on that kind of false religion. The worship of created things instead of the creator. They've turned their back on the immorality of Ephesus. The license. The hedonism. And Jesus says, I can see that you've even suffered for following me. Verse 3, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. And when people have come into the church teaching things that are not true, you've not allowed it, you've not tolerated it, you've, you've tossed them out. Those who claim to be apostles but are not, who bring a false message that's, that's from a false Jesus. Those people, I think, are who he's referring to when he talks in verse 6 about the Nicolaitans. I was worried for years that the Nicolaitans might have been named after someone called Nicholas, and I thought that was probably not a great sign. But actually, I think it's to do with what the root of the name Nicholas is. So, uh, my name, believe it or not, means the victory of the people. I mean, I know, how did my parents possibly have such foresight? But it comes from the Greek word Nike, you know, the sports chain that the Greeks loved. Um, and um, the Nicolaitans 
it seems were those who claimed that they had already overcome, that they had already achieved all the victory that, you know, received all the victory that Jesus had won for them. And what that seems to have looked like in the early church is a particular kind of teaching that said, well, I'm, I have achieved full communion with God in my spirit, so it doesn't matter what I do with my body. So they were simultaneously claiming massive spiritual superiority while at the same time living lives that didn't look Christian at all. Given over to their own desires completely. It's a pattern that happened through the early church time and time again. That people would come and say, well you've been set free by Jesus so you can do what you like. And it's a deadly falsehood. And notice what Jesus says. You hate that. And I hate that. Things that lead people away from the truth of God are things that Jesus hates. And to the church at Ephesus, Jesus can say, well, you've got this in your favour. You find that hateful. And so do I. So don't be fooled for a moment that, you know, being a Christian means you can just do what you want. That somehow the life you live doesn't matter anymore. I know to the contrary, it means a huge amount. And Paul is, Paul John, uh, Jesus writing to John, is absolutely clear on that fact, isn't he? You've not given in, he says. And that's what makes verse 4 so shocking. In so many ways, this church looks like what a church should be. Even under pressure, they've held out. And yet. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So it would be possible, wouldn't it, to to, to look at this and say, well, you know, the church in Ephesus isn't in such a bad way. There's so much that looks good and right. But make no mistake, Jesus says to them, you're in danger of not being a church at all. I will come and take your lampstand away. And then there will be six. That's shocking, isn't it? This is a church in danger of not being a church. And what is it that is wrong? This is a church that has lost its love. It's remarkably similar actually in in tone to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 to the church in Corinth. It's a really familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13, because it gets read at almost every wedding you go to, doesn't it? And it was read at Princess Diana's funeral. But listen just how he begins. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
For I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you hear the point of that? He says, look, you might have the most extraordinary, ecstatic spiritual experience, but if you don't have love... It doesn't matter. It's of no value to you. You might have incredible spiritual insight, incredible theological knowledge, incredible supernatural uh, ability to discern the mysteries of God. But if you don't have love, it's of no value to you. You might be heroically self-giving and sacrificial. You might do amazing works of service in your church and in your community. But if you don't have love, those works are worth nothing. Jesus says, I'll come, I'll take away your lampstand. What's the point of this? What's the heart of it? I I think it is simply this. They have fallen into a, a, a mode of Christian living that could carry on just as happily if God didn't exist. They're gritting their teeth and getting on with it, but there's no joy. And at the heart of it, there's no relationship. The way the book of Revelation ends is in a garden city in which there is no suffering and no death and no pain and no grief. And it may well be that people in the church in Ephesus thought if we can just hang on, we can get to that garden city. We can, we can receive this blessed new creation that God has promised to his people. That, after all, is what Jesus promises, isn't it, at the end uh, in verse 7. I will give to the one who is victorious, which is a play on words with the Nicolaitans, ironically, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. But you see, if you live so that you can get to heaven because you think that heaven is a wonderful place, you're in real danger of missing the whole point of the Christian faith. Because you see, in Revelation chapter 21, where that city is described, the thing that is most wonderful about it is that in that city, God will be with his people and they will see his face. And if your Christian life is marked by duty but not by love of God, you're in real danger. Because what Jesus came to do was to bring you to his Father. So that you could love him and enjoy him forever. And a church that is full of duty and obedience but not love is in danger of not being a church at all. Because love is the whole point of it. Love is the only thing that will last into eternity. The love that we share with God and that then overflows from him to each other. It's not a minor thing, this problem in Ephesus. It's terrifying. 
they've lost the heart of their faith. And they're in danger of losing their faith altogether. So as we gather together and praise God in song, if there's no heart to that, if, if you don't ever feel like the thing I want to do more than anything today is praise God, the thing I want to do more than anything is know him, know him better. Not know the truth, not know facts, but him. That's a warning sign. He didn't come to fill our heads with information, did he, Jesus? He came to bring us to himself. What does Jesus suggest as a remedy? Well, he says, think back to the beginning. Do the things you did at first. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. And he gives, gives them... Two verbs, two things to do. First of all, consider. Consider how far you've fallen. Look back to what your life as a church was like to start with. And then he says, repent. Turn back. Now, I want to suggest that that's very deliberately referring back to the command that came with the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. Repent. Turn from your sin. It's not explicit here, but I think that probably what's gone on with the church in Ephesus is that they have slowly shifted in all their doing of good, in all their obedience, in all their hard work and perseverance. They've shifted from trusting Jesus for their salvation to trusting themselves, to thinking we're good people, we're good Christians, and that's why God will accept us. And so as John points them back, as Jesus points them back to what they did at first, you see, that's not how anyone comes to know Jesus, is it? That's not the gospel. No one's told, just keep doing what you're doing, try a bit harder. What does Jesus say at the beginning of Mark's gospel? Repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Repent, recognize your sin and turn from it and put your trust in the one who offers complete forgiveness. And when you receive forgiveness like that, it overflows in love. I've shared this story my first evening here, I think. Lots of you weren't there, and if you were, please bear with me. When I was in my uh, second year at university, I had a massive spiritual crisis. And it was, it was really bad. I, I actually got to the point where I didn't really feel like I could be on my own in a room. And I, I ended up arranging to go and see a Christian counsellor. It had been quite hard to, to find something, and I'm the, the sort of person who instinctively wants to just tough things out. So to actually sort of give in and accept that I needed help was quite a big thing for me. Uh, and um, I, I went off to, to see this person on an evening, Weekday evening. It was this kind of time of year. It was dark and cold and a bit wet. And I arrived there. Having, I was going out with Sam already at that point, and I borrowed her bike and cycled over. And it was at a church, not unlike this. 
And when I got there and said the name of the person I was there to see, I was met with a very confused look. And anyway, they said, oh, I'll, I'll go and see if I can find him. And he came back and he was very embarrassed because he was supposed to be at a PCC meeting. He said, can we arrange another time? And I, I was just desperate. And I said, I'm, look, I'll wait. Can I see you after the meeting? So they put me in this kind of upstairs room where they stored the chairs and, you know, unwanted counsellees. And... Um, <laughs> This is in the, day before mobile, the days before mobile phones. I had nothing to do. But there in the pocket of my coat was a book of sermons from the first ever Word Live conference. Now, the fact that I had that book in my pocket told you quite a lot about me. I, I went to university, and the thing that mattered most to me about being there was that I was a Christian. And, and I'd sort of built an identity in that, and I knew my Bible quite well, and you know, I was sort of recognized within the Christian Union as, as, a, as a leader. And, um, and yet, well, I had that book because I wanted to be the kind of person that read books of sermons, but I hadn't even opened it before. <laughs> but now I had nothing else to do, so I took it out and I started to read I found a sermon that was written by someone I knew I was supposed to admire. And it was on Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. It's a psalm that begins, Have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your unfailing love. And in this sermon, it's a very simple point. But the preacher said, the person who's really understood this psalm will be content never to be anything more than a forgiven sinner. And it was as if the lights went on at that moment. And I realized that my spiritual problem was basically this, that I had forgotten the good news of Jesus. I'd started to think that me being a Christian was about somehow me being good. Somehow that I had something to present to God and to the world. And in that moment, God just put his hand on my life and said, you're mine because I love you, because my son Jesus came to die for you and to give you new life. Just ask me and you'll be forgiven. And actually the thing I most needed to be forgiven for was my rejection of that, my turning to myself. I think that's a bit like the situation in Ephesus and, and in that moment for me it was like the lights came on actually the lights really did come on there was another set I hadn't seen uh, the guy came in he'd finished his PCC meeting he said okay right what's going on I said I'm sorry you're too late <laughs> friends if you find that your heart has grown cold that the love has gone out of your relationship with the Lord Jesus don't be content with that it's a horrible way to live and it's a dangerous one because you could find you missed Jesus altogether. And in just a moment, we will come to this table and we will receive broken bread and poured out wine, which symbolize to us and speak to us of the fact that God loved you so much that he gave his only son. That Jesus willingly allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. He died so that we can live. 
If your heart's growing cold, why don't you pray as we come to this table that God will light again in your heart that flame of love that burned so bright at first.